Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. It is OSR October, day 28, and I'm now delving into one of the biggest books I have. One that has given me much joy and time with my friends. A great game by Jeffrey Talanian called Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Or now just Hyperborea. This is now in its third edition. I have the second edition in front of me. I'm still waiting for my leather covers uh, of the third edition to come in. I made a campaign with this system with the intention of running every module ever created for it, which I think ended up being about 12 modules, and we successfully did it. It is one of the longest campaigns I've ever run and one of the most fun. What makes Hyperborea different is that and again, I'm kind of going off speaking with Jeffrey a little bit myself, but also interviews he's been in. It took a slightly different approach, I think, than a lot of people do to the game. And that is that he was creating a setting first. And then as he created this setting, this Hyperborea setting, based on the novels and the short stories and the writers and the and and D&D that he loved, he found that you know, as he was making more and more stuff for it, that eventually a game sprung forth. And this game has its roots, I would say, pretty firmly in first edition Dungeons & Dragons. I've heard some people say second edition, and I would love if you think that for you to call in and tell me why, because I never see the connection there. Um, there's not kits. There's not uh, non-weapon proficiencies and stuff like that. So I don't know. I mean, that's what I always think of with second edition. But I think this is firmly in the place of first edition with some squeezing and tweaking and moving around to make it actually, in my opinion, oh, oh I'm going to get feedback. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, a better game. Why better? Well, because it's tighter. And I think that if you look at what is, while wow, we're going off on a side note here, I think if you look at what was the intention of first edition, uh, to my understanding, which was to bring the game together as a tighter game versus uh, OD&D, it did a great job. But now we have 40 years or whatever of experience since then. And this tome does it. It takes classes. Well, it's human only. If you don't know Hyperborea, I'll give you a brief thing. Hyperborea is a chunk of Earth, effectively, that got blown off into space and became its own planet. It is a flat planet. It is, you know, relatively small. And it has this mixture of all these various kind of uh, partially historical, but mostly mythical uh, types of peoples, uh, you know, you might run into Romans, right? But you might also run into Amazons, right? Or people from Mu or, you know, Atlantis. So it's got that vibe. It's very pulp, or I think as pulp as you can get with a D&D type system. Because I feel like there is a certain thing about pulp that you lose when magic is common, and magic is fairly common in every D&D system, at least by the way they're written. You know, you could argue that as much as you like, but if somebody can just choose to be a magician and there's tons of spells available, magic is common enough, right? So this is not a bad thing, but I'm saying this is get you as close as possible to pulp. And I just want to, I could go through this whole book and spend multiple podcasts talking about it, but I just want to, I opened the book up with an intention to read different parts. And I, I this is page, well, it's III, so it's kind of in the intro. There is a set of drawings, a, a series of drawings, I guess, and it's titled An Evening in Hyperborea. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of ex <laughs> explain these. And I think this will give you a feel of the, the, the game. So in the first 
quadrant, we have, the, you can see the back of them, a man with a long cape on and a hat and a staff with a gem on top, clearly a wizard. He's standing slightly behind two armored, but lightly armored uh, warriors, uh, male and female. The female has a sword on her back. They're looking down into a clearing where there's a, clearly a huge bonfire going on. There is, it looks like, I mean, you can't see because there's no detail, but it looks like there might be some kind of a sacrifice happening because you can see something in the center. You see people dancing around the bonfire. They're in the woods. Then we cut to the next one. You see the heroes, heroes' faces. They aren't these classic, uh, you know, the heroes like you see in D&D now. There's no elves here. Nobody looks like they they just came out of the the the, the shower and all their, uh, you know, their nails are perfect and everybody looks beautiful. The the man has this kind of a dirty face. The woman has a kind of a, a snarl, like, you know, like she's ready to do something. The What you now is probably clearly a wizard with his long beard and kind of a turban in the back is looking down as they make their approach. It cuts to another frame where you see a man sitting on what is some kind of a throne or seat It is with furs on it. This man is wearing a necklace and not much health. On either side of him, there are masked uh, warriors who have long pole arms. His guard, clearly. He's yelling something. Then we cut to the side and we see a woman. She's tied to a pole. You can see the people dancing around. You see the, the ecstasy in the eyes of the dancers. You close up of the man who's sitting there with a uh, with a necklace. His teeth are sharpened. You can see uh, jewelry embedded into his skin. Then we cut back to the top. The wizard is pointing towards a cave or an entrance he, with his staff. The party starts to move down the stairs as they creep past uh, the the warrior with a lantern in his hand. They look up and boom! There's a terrible beast hanging from the ceiling. Its single eye staring at them, its gaping maw and tentacles reaching out to grab them. And there we go. That is a night in Hyperborea. It is pulpy. It is raw. It taps into the things that we get in Howard, in Clark Ashton Smith, in Lovecraft, in a way that I think D&D often doesn't. This is not a game of let's go into a cave system full of goblins and chop them down and take our treasure and leave. This is a game of pulp stories. It's dangerous and it's very complete and ties together. So I do want to just cover one more quick part. I was just going to do that, but probably the thing that people talk most about Hyperborea, and I'm just going to mention it just because you've never heard of this game, is that there's something like 26 classes in this game. They, because there's four main classes and the game, the book actually suggests that if you're new to the system or you have new players, you just stick to the four main classes. So you get your fighter, your magician, your cleric, and your thief. Those are your core classes. They're very familiar to anybody who's played RPGs, but they've got special stuff to them. The fighter can specialize in weapons and get multiple attacks. The magician can have a familiar, can write scrolls. The cleric is a little different. I love the cleric in this because they have to learn from their holy books. They don't, just don't know all the spells. And the thief. The thief is interesting. They've got a D12 skill system. It's much like the thief that you'd normally see with a lot of competency. The weapon system in here is really interesting. So you don't have that, oh, magician can only use a dagger. And you don't have that clerics can only necessarily use blunt weapons. And it's all kind of explained and worked through the system. But then we get into subclasses. The fighter subclasses, barbarian, berserker, carafract, Huntsman, Paladin, Ranger, Warlock. All of these, you could almost be looked at as combo classes for the most part. Almost like a multi-class character might be. 
You got magicians. You have chiromancer, illusionist, necromancer, pyromancer, witch, clerics are druids, monk, priest, runegraver, shaman, thieves are assassins, bards, legerminists, purloiner, and scouts. You can customize your character, not by character builds, but by picking the archetype that fits closely with what you want to do. And this is what I like about this. It gives you an advanced game. Sure, I can play OD&D and play a fighter and say, well, my fighter is a berserker or my fighter is a paladin or my fighter is, a, is whatever. But this gives you mechanical uh, ways to show that. And that I think a lot of people like, and I definitely like it. And for a long campaign, it's really great. The final thing I'll say here, because I don't want this to be too long, is that Hyperborea does a great job of showing the world in chunks. That is, there's a massive section on what is the world of Hyperborea, and I definitely recommend running the system in the, the world because it works really well. But when they do it, they don't give you 16 pages about each city. There's little chunks and pieces that get your mind going and then let a GM expand on it. And then what they've done in a very old school fashion is as they release different modules that take place in different parts of the world, they add gazetteers and add to the world there. So you could have your own version of Atlantis or you could, or New Atlantis, I think is what it's called, or you could, if a module comes out that references it, you can use that information. So it's really great. It's a growing system. It's a living system. Like I said, they just printed the third edition. It's, I think you can probably get the non-special like special edition leatherette books now from, from there. I will find a link to the site. You can definitely get it on DriveThruRPG as a PDF. I'll put a link to that as well. It is well worth the cost. I have said, <laughs> I'm sure Jason will call in, that I don't typically pick up games that are massive tomes anymore. Well, I bought this before that <laughs> and I would buy it again. It Sometimes it's worth it. So if you're looking for a system not to just put on your shelf and, you know, look at once in a while, but want to delve into and run a long campaign and to really build stories with your friends, Hyperborea is definitely one of my picks. It is almost certainly, a de well, it's definitely on the short list of the Desert Island RPGs for me. I feel like I could play this game over and over and over again and never reach a point where there wasn't new stuff being presented to me, especially with the expansions and the, the the modules that come out. Now, I will say that, at least so far, there's no dragons in Hyperborea. So if you need dragons in your game, you're just going to have giant lizards. Other than that, <laughs> you're good to go. If you guys have played Hyperborea, if you own Hyperborea, if you're interested in Hyperborea, any of that good stuff, go ahead and give me a call. You can look in the show notes below for a link to the anchor page to reach out to me. You could join my Discord server. Again, link in the show notes. Reach out to me there. I'm also on Clerics Wear Ringmail, the Audio Dungeon, and Grizzly Peaks Radio Discord, so I'm all over the place. All right, we have a couple of calls about previous episodes, so let's get to them. Hey, Daniel. Pink Phantom here. Yeah, I love Blogs on Tape, too. It's a great podcast. And no, you weren't imagining things. He... I mean, that, that feed tends to have some long hiatuses uh, before he started broadcasting again here, podcasting again here in October. Uh, the last podcast was back in August of last year, 2021. And then, no, I'm sorry, September of 2021. He, he ran a whole series of posts from August to September 2021. And there was another hiatus before that that was over a year long from july of 2020 to august 2021 so it seems like he builds up a lot of 
you know, I don't know if it's a Titan thing or if it's just he he records a lot and then just puts them all out at once. That was the Pink Phantom over at Phantom Thoughts Podcast. Thank you for that. I uh, Now I'm wondering if people do the same with me because I feel like I put out a lot of podcasts and then big gaps in between. Don't stop following. I swear I'm still around. <laughs> Thanks for your call. Hey, Daniel. Spencer here. I just wanted to echo what you were saying at the end of your Yoon Soon episode uh, because I never used to play D&D back in the day. My interests in the OSR has nothing to do with nostalgia whatsoever. It's very much about me discovering uh, those principles of play lead to a game that I'm very much interested in playing, you know, and and the reason I still value, value the label, even though what's coming out of the OSR is evolving and changing and that definition continues to broaden um it, it still makes it possible for me to keep track of what's going on in an area of the hobby that very much interests me it's not about being part of a tribe or denigrating any other style of play hey daniel jason here so i need to push my glasses up and tell you the hateful place is not osr and then um i'm giving you a hard time it's definitely in that whirlpool that, that, that this whole mess of OS, OSR or OSR adjacent DIY kind of things, right? It's in that same think space, without a doubt, even if it's not mechanically um, compatible per se. It, it It's a little dark for my taste. I mean, I've, I've got the game. I've listened to you talk about it. Nikki talk about it. The creator talk about it. Um, the whole hour of sunlight and the rest of the time is dark and demon infested and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's kind of like Morkborg. It's kind of a dark world for my taste. But I definitely would be interested in giving it a shot. I think the the way it's set up and the way you've talked about running it in the past of just, you know, randomly generating the scenario at the table at time of game is great. And and I think that's a great way for the DM to practice their creativity and their, their in, you know, their instincts and, and, and just pl- running things off the cuff without preparation. I think that's something we all should practice to do because that ability to, to improv and, and do things off the cuff is very important. Even if you do all your prep, there are times you're going to have to do that. So running whole games like that, I, I think is an important skill. Um, so yeah, thank you for talking about the hateful place. That was uh, Spencer from keep off the borderlands and Jason from nerds RPG variety cast. And I smushed those together because I think they kind of, at least the beginning of uh, Jason's they tie in. I mean, I know Jason's giving me a hard time, but the idea of like the OSR being this kind of umbrella and being able to kind of look at what's going on, let's say in the, I'm doing air quotes here, the industry of RPGs, you know, what is OSR? What's going on? What are the movements? And I think like many things, you've got these like blanket movements, right? The OSR on some level could be considered these these like smaller, quicker paced games that are played a certain way. You know, you thinking about the the primer of old school play and stuff like that. Or they could be considered games that are compatible with TSR, or they could be considered any number of things, right? But if we look at them, if I had to give you a module from from The Hateful Place, and I handed it to somebody who's running OSE, or Troika for that matter, you could probably play that. And I think that comes down to play style. So what is true compatibility? 
would be the question, right? Now, all that being said, as we get closer to the end of the month, I think I'm going to have to reevaluate or maybe expand on what I consider OSR. Because as I dig through my shelf, looking for things that I consider OSR that just stick out to me and I go, yeah, that's OSR. I am forming some kind of an idea and in, in a, an opinion, maybe that's different than what I had on the first of the of the month. We'll find out, I guess. To the second part, to the kind of randomization, to the improv style that Havel plays brings out, I guess, in the GM or in the players. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really great thing. And it does, it is dark, it, weirdly, right? I mean, people who know me, it is darker than I generally like to play. You know, this is the reason why, like, I have Morkborg, but I don't usually play it. I have Viking Death Squad. It's still in its wrapper. Like, I'm not a big dark metal person. <laughs> but Hateful Place, though, has got to my table many, many times. And the reason for that is I think instead of giving you what is a supposed world, and I don't want to, no, I'm going to, no, I think it's pretty fair to say that Morkborg and Viking Death Squad, the two I mentioned, definitely give you a supposed world. Hateful Place doesn't do that. All it basically says is the world went to blank. And you can kind of interpret that any way you want. The general idea is this darkness, but again, the darkness could be anything, right? The darkness could be poverty. The darkness could be uh, oppression where people have to work. It could be anything that you bring into it. And I think that's what makes the Hateful Place useful as a tool because you can look at it and say, wow, this is really... Uh, can be really powerful and you can actually, you know, science fiction, boy, Daniel's going off on a tangent. Science fiction at its finest is about looking at our world and making a statement using, you know, a future projection, right? If things keep going this way, this could happen, right? That kind of thing, right? If the, the if we keep building up nuclear bombs, then eventually we might get Godzilla, right? <laughs> but the Hateful Place allows you to actually play those things out and play them out at a comfort level and at a connection level of your group because there's nothing handed to you. There's no presupposed thing that happened, right? It can be demons and devils and that kind of stuff. It can be Wall Street bros or Bitcoin bros or D&D bros or whatever other kind of bros. It's always bros, right? It's got to be some kind of bro <laughs> that caused the problem. So yeah, I think that's why I, I'm into Hateful Place and not so much the other darker stuff, even though those have great, like Death Squad's got that cool uh, mechanic system that it uses, which I think is kind of neat. And and they give you that, uh, give you, I guess it came with the, the PDF anyways, uh, came with the game as I ordered it, where you can just has the system uh, devoid of the world. And I was cool to look at, you know, it's always cool to see what people do. Morkborg to me, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a cool looking book. I don't know that I'll ever really play it. Uh, it's got some great resources though. If somebody wants to run Morkborg for me, let me know. Cause I'd be interested to play every time I've ever heard anybody talking about playing it though. It was always gonzo silly and never really super dark. So I'd love to hear that. <laughs> it is Morkborg OSR. Hmm. For my answer to that, stay tuned. In any case, Thanks, everyone who called in. Thank you guys for listening this far. If you've got something to say, if you'd like to tell me what's OSR and what's not, I appreciate it. Uh, there's a link in the show notes that will give you a access to the anchor page to leave me a message. You could also join my Discord server, also link in show notes. Uh, go ahead and send me a private message like Jason did, and it will uh, 
be uh, put on the show just like it was. Also in the show notes is a link to my Patreon if you want to support the channel that way. I'll talk to you soon.